0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings, Mr. welcome to the Pan-African Journal,
2: worldwide radio broadcast. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine is brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abhay Ogni uh, Today is Saturday, June 4th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the pan-african journal worldwide radio broadcast later on uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular pan-african newswire reports during the month of june we will celebrate the legacy of black music month in the united states so stay tuned for all of the programming uh, for the remainder of this month Uh, this episode uh, features our regular pan-african newswire report uh, with dispatches on the announcement by a spokesperson for the Russian Federation government that the current situation in Ukraine could lead to World War III. Rising food prices in Somalia are choking off the economic life of the Horn of Africa state. The nation of Chad has declared a food emergency inside the country. We'll have details on that as well. And a European Union military force uh, has searched vessels off the coast of Libya in order to enforce a weapons ban. In the second and third hours, we begin our commemoration of Black Music Month with a special focus on the roles of the cities of Detroit and the city of Chicago uh, in the origins of popular music during the post-World War II era. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with the grand Matir Makango Macape, And Yamba Yamba Beto, let's listen in. Thank you. here, Makango Makape, Yamba Yamba Beto, and of course, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the ongoing war in Ukraine, and according uh, to uh, the TASS News Agency, Russia believes uh, what needs to be done is to discuss not whether a third world war will break out, but how to prevent it. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said this on yesterday. Is a third world war possible? She asked. Perhaps it is already underway. Uh, what form will it take? Uh, these are topics that many are discussing. Rather than talking about the world war three, uh, we'd be better off talking about how to prevent it. Uh, she said at a briefing. The diplomat uh, emphasized that for years Moscow has indicated. That international law and the United Nations should serve as a quote safety net unquote against a third world war since they were created following World War II as a guarantee of preventing World War III uh, in one way or another uh, they were doing their job but she pointed out the spokeswoman noted that for three to four years Russia has been taking note of the desire by the collective West to sweep away international law and to introduce A rules-based world order instead Uh, this is extremely dangerous because this implies a dictatorship of uh, one group of countries thereby threatening to upset the balance worldwide while making it impossible for other countries to pursue their interests every country has the right to sovereign foreign and domestic policy to legally defend their interests to develop their economy to defend humanitarian rights to protection and to their own security She continued, when one group of countries grabs power or aspires to take it over, a lot of trouble can be expected. Uh, We tried to tell the global community about this in every way and convey this truth that they they dictate of one pole is impossible and it will lead to destructive consequences. Also, um, all tasks of Russia's special operation at the Azovtal steel plant in Maripur were completed with minimal losses in accordance uh, with the order of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said this in an interview uh, with the Bosnian Serb television and radio company, Radio and Television of the Republic of Spurska. Maripoul, Azovstal, all the tasks were solved and with minimal losses. You know that President Vladimir Putin gave the order not to storm as of fall, Uh, As a result of the siege, the notorious thugs from the Azov Battalion who were there simply surrendered, he said. According to Lavrov, the Nazis who surrendered are now giving evidence. I think they will tell a lot of interesting things about how this neo-Nazi theory and practice was embodied in the daily life of the Ukrainian state, including under President Vladimir Zelensky, the Russian foreign minister said. And on uh, other news uh, taking place uh, in the Horn of Africa, three decades of armed conflict plus climate change plus rising fuel prices is a crushing burden uh, for the people of Somalia. The ripple effect of the conflict in Ukraine pushing fuel prices up is breaking the local market. Abdi Nur Ali, who is 33 years old, runs a taxi business in Galkakio. Uh, He is worried he won't be able to keep up uh, with the cost if the trend continues. Before 20 liters of fuel cost $15, it costs $28 now. Prices keep going up by the day. We are considering parking our cars or even selling them, he says. Hawa Usman, who is 25, who sells groceries at the Del Caccio market, is forced to pass on the rising cost to her customers many of them struggling to make ends meet. Uh, We sell small bundles of onions, mangoes, oranges, and tomatoes. What used to be the cost of 10 bundles of assorted fruit and vegetables now only gets you three bundles, she says. Millions of Somalians uh, who hope for, for the March to May rainy season to alleviate the hardship caused by the prolonged drought are bitterly disappointed. The moderate rains that fell cannot make up for the three consecutive failed rainy seasons. There's a lack of water. There's no food. The drought is hitting us hard, we are finished if someone doesn't come to our rescue, says the 51-year-old Kaha Ahmed of Uguli Village. Uh, She lost 83 goats to the drought and has only 17 left. Uh, Drought is not new to Somalia, but it happens more frequently now and it affects more severely uh, than it used to. Uh, We also have seen and still keep seeing displacement caused by armed conflict, says George Eglin, the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross in Somalia. The ICRC provides cash assistance to the people trapped in the grip of armed violence and weather shocks. 55,000 families received $90 each last month. Uh, Inflation is decreasing. The value of this support, and it may need uh, to be increased, uh, with the Somalian Red Cross Red Crescent Society, the ICRC, has been supporting families affected by the drought. Uh, nearly 300,000 people have benefited from repaired water points. In addition, six emergency mobile health clinics provide health and nutrition support to families in remote areas with no access to health care. Listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment, of the Pan-African Journal. Chad uh, has appealed uh, to uh, the international community, uh, the chairman of the African Union Commission and uh, the Russian president. Uh, they also met in Sochi on Friday. Uh, Chad declared a food emergency in the country on Thursday. Uh, the government calls on all national and international partners to help the population, a decree signed by the chief of the military transition. Mahatma Idris Dibi, uh, it was read, uh, citing a constant deterioration of the food and nutritional situation and a growing risk of food scarcity is no assistance was given to the Saharian nation. The United Nations estimated last year that 5.5 million Chadians, or more than a third of the population, were in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. The situation is only worse than following the war in Ukraine. According to the Observatory of Economic Complexity, the OEC, Russia and Ukraine were the world's second and third cereal exporters in 2020. That same year, Africa imported $4 billion worth of agricultural products from Russia. This is particularly the case uh, for the Maghreb countries, which rely on Russian and Ukrainian wheat. With imports accounting for more than 50%, southern Africa is not spared. An economic blow is expected to be felt in Zambia, and Zimbabwe, for example. Russian companies supply the banks all the fertilizer use uh, for the country. Chad's special appeal for assistance comes as the African Union chairperson and the chairman of the African Union Commission met uh, yesterday uh, with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, This was done to discuss uh, the impact of the war and also uh, the circumventing of the sanctions in order for stocks of grain and fertilizer uh, to come uh, into uh, African states. In a message addressed on Tuesday to the leaders of the European countries meeting in Brussels, the Senegalese president asked to do everything to release the grain stocks available in Ukraine, but blocked because of the Russian offensive that organizes a blockade in the Black Sea and prohibits access to the port of Odessa. Saul spoke of a catastrophic scenario of shortages, and generalized price increases. The Senegalese president also raised the issue of the impact of Western sanctions imposed on Russia. And, of course, the Russians have denied uh their of blocking uh, exports of agricultural products. And these products, some of them are not covered under the existing sanctions. The ban of select Russian banks uh, from the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications SWIFT banking system The impossibility for all four African nations to obtain, complicated. It's more of an explanation uh, related uh, to uh, the sanctions that have been, uh, unprecedented sanctions that have been uh, leveled against the Russian Federation uh, by the U.S. and the European Union. Finally, the United Nations Security Council approved a resolution on Friday, extending the authorization for countries and regional organizations to inspect vessels on the high seas of the coast of Libya, suspected of violating the United Nations arms embargo on uh, this troubled North African state. Now, the vote on the French-sponsored resolution was 14-0, to with Russia abstaining. The brief resolution extends the authorization for inspection for a year. The monitoring effort has been carried out since March 2020 by a European mission called the Operation Irini. The word, uh, the word for peace, uh, the EU said at the start that it would have, at at its core, the task of implementing the United Nations arms embargo through the use of aerial, satellite, and maritime assets. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners That the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people uh, throughout the continent and the world the press agency was founded in january of 1998 and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers magazines journals research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world the pan-african newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, if you can uh, as well um, want to hear uh, this program, the Pan-African Journal, uh, Worldwide Radio, broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Saturday, June 3rd, uh, 2022, June 4th, excuse me, 2022. All you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. And by going uh, to this site, uh, blogtalkradio.com, forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you hear today's program uh, for June 4th, uh, 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And this is our program uh, for Black Music Month, uh, the tradition that goes back to uh, the late 1970s, uh, honoring, recognizing, claiming, and celebrating the legacy of uh, African music. And uh, today uh, we're going to begin uh, where we're broadcasting from, and that is the city of Detroit, uh, with an audio documentary on the Motown invasion of the UK in 1965. And, of course, uh, looking at uh, the history of Motown Records, which began here in the city of Detroit in 1959. Let's listen in to the Motown invasion of the UK. <laughs>
3: In November 1964, Motown achieved their very first number one hit in the UK.
4: There's no week that goes by when I haven't played a Motown record on a radio station somewhere. If you listen to Reach Out, I'll Be There or Baby Love, it doesn't sound dated. In the 60s, if you had a record player, you had to play Motown
3: Records. We were the best. To capitalize on this success, the label quickly organized a major British tour, starting in March, 1965.
5: Something about the UK, when you had a hit there, somehow it would spread all over the world.
3: For three weeks, from the 20th of March to the 14th of April, 1965, a coach carried the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Smokey Robinson, and little Stevie Wonder, around England, Scotland and Wales. Today, this would be considered a lineup to die for, but in 1965, the tour was not the success everyone hoped for. Although an artistic triumph, it was a box office disaster.
6: We called it the ghost tour. England was a big disappointment.
3: (laughs) Despite this setback, the trip would be absolutely crucial to Motown breaking the UK. This is the story of how an ambitious label from Detroit conquered Britain through talent, drive, and a little help from some UK friends.
7: We loved the label. We loved the music, the sound they made. You were cool if you knew about Motown, you know?
8: Town with a hunger for entertainment. Uh, Detroit, to me, in, in the late 50s, was a, a very swinging kind of town. It was quite musical. There were many show bars, so to speak. It was a very fun city. It was a great time.
9: Great time to uh, be alive.
8: There was a lot of music. There was a lot of going out, coming in. People were working hard. You know, the factories, you could hear them clinking and clanking. Uh, and it had, a, it had like a rhythm to it, you know?
10: Detroit, is known for its
3: Detroit was alive Dreams, hope, and a brand new sound In
6: 1959, Motown was launched
1: It's got the little that make Sing the
6: I remember my high school And how we would, after the school session We'd go out in the park and we'd sing Those of us that had voices uh, Doo-wop music you know, somebody had a bad note, they'd, we'd whop them. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, songs coming out uh, from a company, a black-owned company. My dad fell in love with one song recorded by a guy named Barrett Strong.
1: best things in life are free. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to
3: Barry Gordy, a former boxer and factory worker, was the architect of Motown Records, which he started with an $800 loan from his father. Brimming with confidence, Barry Gordy named Motown's headquarters in Detroit, Hitsville, USA. And it was here, in a cramped recording studio, that one of the label's earliest pop hits was recorded, by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles.
9: being the first million seller really put Motown on the airwaves. It put it really out there so that people had a feeling there's a new sheriff in town. By
3: 1963, Marvin Gaye, the Marvelettes and Martha the Vandellas were climbing high up the American pop charts in the wake of Smokey's hit. In the UK in the late 50s, British pop lacked the bite of black American music for some teenagers, like Steve Barrow.
11: Cliff Richard wasn't expressing anything when he's saying, I've got myself a living doll. You know, you think so? You can tell that to the birds and bees, you know? I want money. That's direct. That's not oblique. That's not going around the houses like the English way, you know? Subtle. You know, that's telling it like it is.
3: But as late as 1963, and despite a passionate, underground group
12: of British fans, the Motown sound was still almost impossible to hear in the UK. There weren't very many places to hear pop music in the early 60s in Britain. You had Radio Luxembourg, of course, at night, who broadcast shows that played a lot of records.
3: Broadcast from the other side of the channel, Radio Luxembourg was an English-language station and virtually the only source of black American music for British fans.
12: What happened is, you know, suddenly you came across this this tiny little outpost in the middle of the night when, really, you should be asleep to school. And, of course, that only lent to the, you know, the special quality of it. You were meeting in the middle of the night with the music that was to change your life.
3: As well as a media blackout on soul music, another obstacle that Motown faced in Britain was an explosive new style of music that was grabbing all the attention. Upturn of the entire music industry. And
13: I don't think American product was was very much um, thought of to a great degree. I think the concentration was on British artists. Initially the radio stations wouldn't touch Motown. We released all this product and yet we couldn't get any support from any radio at all.
14: I was considered a bit strange because everyone was into the Beatles and the Stones and the Merseybeat was really happening. I was so aware that these were, a lot of them were cover versions of American records. I was very anti the Merseybeat. What you
7: would find was, most fans thought it was ours. I mean, not everyone is a connoisseur, you know, so if you sing it,
3: they assume it's yours. Many British bands covered Motown records because they were fantastic songs, but also because no one in the UK knew the original versions.
12: The injustice that came from these cover versions seemed just appalling. What on earth were they doing covering these records? Why would you want to listen to the Rolling Stones sing Can I Get a Witness, if you had Marvin Gaye?
7: Basically, we were asked, you know, what's your favourite music? We would say, black American music. We were all soul fans. I think one of the good things about the Beatles, we had very similar tastes. All of us loved Motown, but when we actually started covering their stuff and said that they were our favorite
3: artists,
7: we did each other a favor.
3: By 1964, Motown acts were making massive pop breakthroughs in the States. Most impressively, the Supremes hit number one in the American pop charts three times that year.
5: I think because of the success that he's had, it made you want to go further if you could. It becomes, wow, look what we've done, let's do some more. Today the United States, tomorrow the world.
3: Then, in November 1964, thanks to enthusiastic endorsements from the Beatles and independent radio DJs, a major breakthrough happened. Motown finally reached number one in the U.K. pop charts with Baby Love. With success rocketing in the States and their very first number one hit single in the U.K., Barry Gordy believed the time was right to launch a major Motown offensive in Britain. On the fifteenth of March, nineteen sixty-five, the Motown Review jetted into London. A hardcore of fans from the British Tamla Motown Appreciation Society met Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, The Miracles, and The Supremes at Heathrow Airport.
6: Had gotten such a huge, wonderful reception. I think it was EMI who was handling everything, and the fans who had shown up at the airport. It was. We, our expectation of the tour was so great. I was just amazed at the reception we received at the airport, the reception we received on the way to the hotel. I mean,
0: it was, like, overwhelming.
3: On the 20th of March, 1965, the Motown artists were nervously gearing up backstage at the Astoria to play their very first UK show. Following their number one hits in the States and UK, the Supremes were now headlining for the first time. I remember going along to the Astoria,
13: which in those days was in Finsbury Park, going with Vicky Wickham and a lot of the Ready Steady Go gang.
15: I mean, everybody was just bowled over. These great-looking guys or great-looking girls in costumes, you know, doing routines and steps and dances that you know we hadn't even dreamed of, far less seen. It was absolutely phenomenal.
3: The very youngest Motown star to perform that night was also a pretty tough act to follow.
16: Motown Review proudly presents 13-year-old genius of our time.
13: Stevie Wonder The most exciting thing of all on that show was little Stevie Wonder he was absolutely blindingly
8: brilliant
4: Gordy realised right from the word go that you couldn't just produce these records, the artists had to be exciting and go on stage and present these songs. They had the, you know, the, the, the wigs and everything and they had the, the, these wonderful costumes that they came out in but it was all glamorous and every night they would just go out there and just perform and they were always 100% every single performance they did. The most
13: depressing thing of all about the opening concert was the fact that the theatre was half empty. I thought that was so sad. And uh, those of us who were there had to cheer and clap the, about ten times louder than
3: usual uh, just to try and make up for it. Despite the low attendance of the Astoria, Gordy kept the Motown Act so busy they had no time to dwell on the small turnout.
6: On our first press conference, People pressed in, nowhere to sit, body to body, and very hot temperature because it was so crowded from body heat. One of the paparazzi said to me, "Uh, you look a little bit weary. You could use some Guinness. And I'm saying to him, what's a Guinness? And he said, I'll tell you, I'll go get you a half pint. He came back and I, I drank it because I needed the help. And while the other two girls were falling asleep on one another... I was all full of energy because it does give you energy and it's not so much to, to uh, inebriate you but to give you the little surge that I needed and I've been a drinker of Guinness ever since.
3: Following two shows in London, the Motown Review left the capital for their three-week tour of Britain. Motown boss Barry Gordy accompanied his artists on the UK tour. He was the man who orchestrated all the elements that made Motown unique, from the artist development department to music that crossed racial barriers. It was his vision that would eventually push Motown onto the global stage.
7: Well, he obviously had a a big say in things. I think in how they dressed, how everyone looked, how the material was. I think you've got to hand it to Barry Gordy. It didn't seem like the other labels had such a charismatic
17: leader.
3: Barry Gordy wanted the Motown tour to promote both his artists and the label at the same time.
17: The idea of a review, I mean, a a label putting together their artists to come over and say, look, this is promoting not only the artists themselves, but the label itself, the whole concept, the whole ethos of what Motown was all about. That was an extraordinary thing. We didn't really have that going on in UK at all. In fact, I don't think, that, I think it was possibly the first time the word review had been used for a tour of that nature.
1: And
6: marketing, distribution, all these things were very new for a black company. And uh, I would say probably the, the, the first problem would be to how do we sell this music? So now you open up to other ethnic groups. So it wasn't just all a black company. Very, very early on, there, were, uh, there was Barney Ellis who was the, the marketing guy, and uh, I think Barney's, I, should, I think he's Italian. <laughs> I was a salesman at Capitol Records, and I knew what,
7: how to sell and how not to sell. I had artists like Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and things like that. So I worked the same things that I did at Capitol at Motown.
3: Yeah. Gordy always hired the best person for the job, irrespective of race.
6: His talent was to know what people could do and to say, okay, that's good for me. You're hired.
3: Dave Godin ran the British Tamla Motown Appreciation Society and was the label's official advisor in the UK. Dave Godin in this
14: country just went to great lengths to promote it in every way he could.
3: But intriguingly, because of Dave Godin's passion for the music, he may have exaggerated Motown's popularity in the UK to Gordy.
14: I've heard that he had led Barry Gordy to believe there were many more fan members than there really were. We would never have brought
7: the tour there if we didn't think it was going to be successful without somebody telling us. I mean, look, we're not naive little kids. I mean dollars and cents was what was going to happen there, and we, so we took the tour
3: across the entire country. The tour's first stop after leaving London was Bristol.
12: One teenager who'd been a devoted Motown fan for a couple of years was Adam White. In the provinces, you know, it was almost unbelievable that they would be coming to your town. So firstly you didn't believe it, and then when you realized it was true, you know, it was a religious experience. Martha and the Vandellas came out on stage. Three dynamic, exciting girls. And they were bouncing around the stage like something I had never seen. They sang dancing in the street. I mean that's an anthem. It was extraordinary. You almost couldn't believe that you would you would be seeing and hearing this music in front of you. Martha had a very strong, vibrant voice, a sense of that was rhythm and blues, that was soul. Oh, oh. it was amazing and something else that's important about Motown in Britain at that time of course you know they were they were choreographed they had an act
3: Motown was the very epitome of slick uptown American soul unlike many British acts the Motown stars didn't just stand in front of the microphone their sharp moves and choreographed routines were an essential part of the
12: training they had received in Detroit oh! Not only did you have this extraordinary music being performed live in front of your eyes, you had a visual experience as well. So it made it a 3D event, and that only added to, to the you know, extraordinary nature of the night and the sense that all your, you know, all your wishes were fulfilled at once.
3: Unfortunately, unsold tickets continued to haunt the tour.
12: I used to remember looking back behind me and just seeing row and row of empty seats. So I would have said, if Colston Hall's capacity was 2,000, there were three or four hundred people at most in that in that hall.
6: No one came. <laughs> we were so excited. We'd come to the Hammersmith or wherever we were, and the audience was like half filled. No one was out there. So that's why we called it the Ghost Tour.
3: In the States, Motown had fought from the bottom up to get established. Now, in the UK, they resorted to tough measures.
1: Every evening.
3: British act Georgie Fame, at number one in the UK pop charts with Yeah Yeah, was drafted in to boost flagging ticket sales. Colin Green, guitarist for Georgie Fame, was flattered to be asked.
17: To me it was a terrific honour to be considered good enough to be involved with those illustrious names. I felt a little ill at ease is the wrong word. Uh, I thought we, we were perhaps an imitation of what they were. Georgie Fame enjoyed hanging out backstage
3: with the Motown artists, including Earl Van Dyke, the leader of the Funk Brothers. Although seasoned performers themselves, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames had never witnessed such a dazzling review before.
17: Every night they watched Hypnotized, wondering how they could follow such acts major thing in watching from the wings would have been the musicians, what they were doing, how they were doing it, just what they didn't play a lot of the time, what they left out.
3: The Funk Brothers backed the Motown artists on this tour. They gave the Motown sound its unique characteristics back in the Detroit studio. If
7: you listen to a modern record now that's got a tambourine on it, you know, the record's, no, the tambourine is if you listen to a Motown, it's right up front. And you listen to Beatle records, the tambourine right up front, probably because the Motown
11: was right up
1: front. You
11: know, these records had the passion of gospel, and they had the coolness of jazz as well. And they had something new, which was this beat. Once you heard those kind of syncopated rhythms that Motown was dealing with, you had to dance. Dancing in the street, demands that you dance, money. These records make you dance. You know, the one thing about post-war English music is the rhythm sections, they don't really swing like the American rhythm sections. They haven't got the kick. Motown had these things all combined in the one package
7: one of the big things that became a huge attraction for me was when I started listening to the bass on the records and in particular James Jameson and you realise you do 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 do, do. And, well that's the record but that bomb, ba, do, 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 do. that's the signature you know of Motown So, yeah, I think James is probably my favourite bass player ever.
1: But during the 1965
3: UK tour, Jameson was required back in the Motown studio. So a talented 17 year old called tony newton was drafted in to play bass
16: some people don't think bass players should be heard they should be felt and then but with motown you need to hear the bass because it is playing a different role than a normal bass
3: on stage one night with Smokey robinson and the miracles tony had an altercation with barry Gordy.
16: we're on stage and so some one of barry's guys said turn down your amp turn down your amp I said, I'm not turning, I kept shaking my head, I'm not going to turn it down.
17: Yeah.
16: One time he gets up and he goes to touch my amp and I took my bass like this. And the show was going on all along, right? So I said, don't touch my amp. At the end of the show, I think they wanted to return me back to Detroit thinking I was uncontrollable. <laughs> but they didn't have nobody to play the music. <laughs> so I was really lucky at that. I was really cocky and lucky at the same time. <laughs>
3: For the young Motown stars who were in their late teens and early 20s, life on the road was a lot
9: of fun. The bus trip was hilarious. (laughs) We had a ball on that bus.
17: Stevie was very much looked upon as the kind of baby of the tour, but really he was the ringleader of most of what was going on. He was always joking around. (laughs) And He had several little phrases that he used to use to people. Somebody annoyed him. He used to turn around and say, I wish you severe chest pains in the head. He was a bullfighter.
9: At some times, there was a few squabbles, but at times when you wanted to sleep, everybody felt like they wanted to sing. And then when you didn't want to sleep, nobody wanted to sing. It was just because there were so many people on this bus.
3: This family atmosphere that existed among the Motown acts was a crucial ingredient to the recording process in Detroit.
10: We would make it a
6: point whenever we were on the road to gather at show you're saying. And, and um, we would uh, be available for whatever. Smokey came to the door once, and uh, he was in Studio A, and said,
18: come on, everybody, we're cutting a song, come on and sing along on it.
6: And we got down in the studio and before you know it he said, All right, is everybody ready?
1: All right, is everybody ready? Yeah! yeah. yeah. yeah.
6: Okay. And the machines were running and he started Lum D lum Lumpy, <laughs> la Lum Lumpy, lum di la That was the enthusiasm. That was the Motown way.
8: Everything was fun, you know, coming home and just Laying back and enjoying going to the studio, just hanging out and then coming by Motown on your way home at two o'clock in the morning and listening to some other people record. You know how Christmas feels the air? Well there was that kind of atmosphere all the time.
3: As the tour zigzagged across the UK, the Motown artists soon discovered that, compared to London, life was a little different in the provinces. Madeline Bell is an American singer who based herself in the U.K. from 1962.
18: For the artists in Motown, they'd all come from projects, what we call council flats. They'd all come from the projects, and they didn't have that much themselves. But the things that they did have was hot water and radiators in, 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 your, in your place. And, you know, there were some things that, that were just sort of normal to us. And then when we came to,
19: to the U.K., it was different.
6: was always so cold, I would put on two of my coats. In fact, I remember sleeping once in my boots and my leather jacket. I had to learn how to keep my shillings so that I might have heat all night because the radiators were operated by shillings. You couldn't put too many at one time, so you'd wake up really cold and put some more shillings in the machine. I stacked my shillings prior to going to, to rest.
3: <laughs> During that three-week tour, The British A-Roads made the journey seem sluggish and drawn out to the Motown artists who were used to giant American freeways.
9: It was kind of hard to get used to England because everything seemed like it was like backwards. You know, they drove on the wrong side of the street and the food was a little
6: different. You had to kind of get used to the food we were excited about the fish and chips so we would always get fish and chips because that was so new for us you know and then it was eaten out of a newspaper you know that was very exciting but you know wasn't that thrilled about the english food it was that that blood pie or you know we're like oh i don't know
3: despite the strange food cold weather and low attendance at their shows The Motown artists always felt welcome in the UK.
6: We were so happy to be here. We were thrilled to be seeing another part of the world that we'd never seen, never experienced, to meet people, to understand that people were basically just the way you are. This was like such a a beautiful um, sort of awakening, especially for black people, to see that, wow, people really like us too. You know, we weren't put down. We were accepted on the merits of our talents.
3: Their experiences in the UK were in distinct contrast to the very first Motown review tour, which traveled through the American Deep South in 1962.
9: It was actually horrendous. I knew about uh, some of the segregation. However, even though there was segregation in Detroit, it was different than it was in the South. In
3: 1965, As the Motown UK tour bus approached Gretna in Scotland, a naive practical joke brought the social and cultural differences between the British musicians and black Americans into sharp focus.
17: We decided it would be a good idea if we held up the coach when it came along. I seem to have a memory of me putting this bullet thing on and perhaps having one of the guns. And we saw the coach coming in the distance and we stepped out into the road. So this coach shuddered to a halt in front of us and there was some Surprise looks from inside.
3: What Colin Green didn't realize was that the Motown artists had been shot at during their tour through the American Deep South three years earlier.
6: Actually, we were shot at several times. I remember occasion going to a rural gas station and the proprietor coming out with a shotgun. I was uh, a little sleepy and a little slow getting off the bus. Three of the guys ran into the gas station asking to use the facilities. with the proprietor saying, who are you? And uh, one of the guys said, oh, don't you know us? We're the Motown Singers. We're famous. And the man said, I don't care who you are, get out of my gas station. And he got his gun and proceeded to stop anyone else from getting off the bus, and I was the next one to get off. And I looked and saw this, this uh, double-barrel shotgun, and I definitely backed up. This man thought we had came to take over his gas station and rob him. And uh, that was a frightening experience.
7: Civil rights hadn't really happened. You talk to the guys, you know, they were, they were having to, uh, you know, go check into other hotels. You know, there's a lot of that still going on, which we couldn't believe. We go, wait a minute, this is America. Isn't this like the land of the free? well we don't have that well we got black guys in liverpool they don't have to check into other
6: hotels we were quite shocked by this whole thing in the earlier days our pictures couldn't be on album covers for fear of you know people seeing it and not buying it uh but the music spoke for itself in a deep sound the power
3: of motown's music literally broke down racial barriers
9: anytime the audience was divided in half, you know, blacks were on one side, whites were on the other side, and they had a rope down the middle. Smokey was one of the first people who said that we were not going to perform unless they took that rope down and let everybody sit where they
6: wanted to sit. And they actually did consent to that. He explained to them that our music was dance music and for fun and pleasure. And if they would just step back, they would see that the music is all about love and happiness. And once they stepped down, The audience got up out of those seats, separated seats, and they danced and sang. And when the music stopped, everyone hugged and embraced.
5: We totally obliterated that thought and that idea of just being race music. It became
2: music for everybody around the world.
3: From Gretna, the tour bus made its way through Scotland to Glasgow, for the Motown show on the 1st of April, 1965. Thank you
14: very much. I was living in Edinburgh at the time, where there was only one black family. So I saw very few black people at all. And really when I saw the, the girls on the Motown review, I was just they were just stunning they had red tassel dresses on and they really made the most of their body movements as they sang and they had a pizzazz that none of the other artists, local artists, seemed to have they danced well, they dressed well, they just looked incredible very polished
1: keep me
14: I had been so impressed by the first show that I went straight back to the box
3: office to see if there were any tickets left for the second show. Luckily for Michael, Glasgow was no different to the other venues. The crowds didn't come and it was easy to buy front row tickets for the second performance that evening. I do know
14: that both Mary and Flo of the Supremes noticed we were back in the front row for the second show and so made continual eye contact which for me was just I was just my knees were going I was having my own supreme mania after the show finished we had no way of getting back to Edinburgh so we just decided to hang around the stage door and at least see the artists leave When Mary, Diana and Florence of the Supremes came out, we tried to get their attention unsuccessfully. They were shepherded straight into a Cadillac, and it drove off. We decided that we would chase it down, which is exactly what we did. It was a rainy, horrible night. Although it was April, it was not a nice evening. We several times almost caught them up as the car would stop at traffic lights and we could see Mary and Flo watching us out the back window and eventually Flo asked the driver to pull over and they stopped the car and we talked to them, they invited us back to their hotel. And my life's never really been quite the same since.
3: As the teenage Michael Critchley discovered, the Motown show was certainly sexy, but it was never allowed to dominate.
15: Motown and Berry was very aware that white people wouldn't accept black men particularly if they were too overtly sexual and I think that was the whole idea behind their looks that they wore beautifully tailored suits and the routines and the way they danced it wasn't necessarily sexual it was just stunning.
8: Our thing was to just be clean cut and to appeal to everybody in the world and not to play down your sexuality but just don't portray it you know just portray a manly sharp-looking man uh, doing his thing
3: (laughs) Maxine Powell set up Motown's unique artist development department to guide and shape the young Motown stars
9: you dance with your feet and not your buttocks you say Those movements that they dance with their buttocks belongs in the bedroom and not on the dance floor. Miss Maxine Powell was phenomenal. It was almost like going through charm school and being able to show the world that you could be classy and you did have grace and charm. Class will help you cross over anywhere. It has nothing to do with black. That's what I like about class. Class doesn't care what your color is, or how many millions you have, or how many Mercedes you have, or where you live. Class will turn the heads of kings and queens. They
19: heard that
6: all while the five years they were with me. (laughs) We couldn't even drink out of a water fountain in public unless it said for colored only. And that was pretty demeaning. So for her to say, here you are, Three little black girls, one day you're going to be singing before kings and queens. We are like looking at her, there. <laughs> what is she talking about? You know, it was like so silly. We we didn't believe any of that stuff. And then she also said, you girls, and she's speaking to all the groups, are like diamonds in the rough. And we're just here to polish you up. Well, that was pretty uplifting for someone to say that. And even for her to say you're singing before kings and queens, that was pretty uplifting. But we didn't believe it because it was so far-fetched. But... It
20: did
1: happen. Is it true, what they say about you?
6: After the Glasgow show,
3: the tour drove south into England towards County Durham. Here the review was invited back to Wynyard Park, a stately home owned by the Lord and Lady Londonderry, who were intrigued by the passing Motown review.
1: Well,
3: the lessons the Detroit stars had learned from Maxine Powell were about to be put to the test.
6: Yes, with the Lord and Lady Londonderry. <laughs> we were invited to this wonderful home. We had a wonderful meal, uh, royalty. It was quite, quite an eye-opener to see how the other half lived. <laughs> there were rooms and rooms and rooms that they never even ventured into, you know. And oh, it was really quite something. I loved the fresh air. I loved uh, the company, and uh, feeling great in this palace. <laughs> They had their chefs and all prepare the meals and it was ooh, just very push, push, push. And it was one of those times you thought about what Mrs. Powell had said. You know, one day you'll be dining with kings and queens and this and that. We're like, whoa, we're doing it. <laughs> just learning to drink tea, learning that that's the way you keep warm and that's the way you keep cool, to keep calm with your tea. When we started drinking sherry, oh, we were also oh sheep. Have a little sherry, please. <laughs> that was so British. We were like, oh yeah. I also started drinking champagne during that time too. Good champagne. Mm-hmm.
3: As the Motown Review travelled from the London Derry's stately home across Northern England to Liverpool, the Motown artists witnessed contrasting sides of British society.
6: We noticed the class system here immediately. Being black, we would notice it, we would see it. You guys just did not acknowledge it the way it was.
7: We were from Liverpool, they were from Detroit, two very working class towns. So we were very similar in our upbringing, in our attitudes towards life. And we loved music, we respected their music so much. And lucky for us, they respected
3: ours. In both Liverpool and Detroit, music was seen as a way of breaking out of society's restrictions. Eddie Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Brian Holland were the three songwriters whose compositions were helping many Motown acts to get out of the ghetto. They were the Lennon and McCartney of Detroit.
8: I call them the greatest tailors of music there is. I mean, they would pick you as an artist call you in their room, to talk about them, say, okay, and they'll fit you with this wonderful song. And you walk out the room, they'll go ahead and they produce it and it comes out big hit. Next, here comes the Vandellas. Totally different kind of outfit, but they still tailor-making this particular song. Okay, boom, boom. Number one. Next song. It
6: was a thrill to work with them. Brian would do the background vocals. Eddie would do the lead vocals and Lamont would play the keyboard and all three of them had beautiful voices so anything they taught you, you could emulate them and you could succeed. So a lot of my earlier recordings with them, I'm actually just mocking Eddie Holland.
21: Uh, Lamont would come up with many of the ideas for the songs, sometimes Brian would, sometimes I would. But my job was basically just to write the lyrics and teach the artist the songs. That was my, you know, and you know, take them to the studio and make sure. They were delivering it in a way that, um, well, I wanted them to anyway.
3: <laughs> Holland Dozier Holland wrote the first hit for the Four Tops. This group, led by Levi Stubbs, was a late signing to Motown and not part of the UK tour in
1: 1965. Baby, I need
6: often said that the late Levi Stubbs, who was just a tremendous singer, had to, you know, had to listen to Eddie, and Eddie told him how to sing. Well, it was like, you're going to tell you know, Levi Stubbs how to sing. <laughs> uh, and, but he did, and, and it, was, it was just like magic, because he was a guy who already knew what he was doing, but Eddie would direct every lead singer how to sing every little portion of that song, and that, uh, again, was what made the magic. <music> March
3: 1965 while the Motown review toured the UK the latest Holland Dozier Holland song knocked the Beatles off the top of the American charts The Beatles and Motown were now regularly fighting it out for the number one position in the States We
7: put a record out uh, you know very influenced by them They put a
5: record out, a bit influenced by us. And we were hoping that they'd come up with something strong. And although we we didn't say it, but we wanted the competition. You know, we we welcomed the competition, matter of fact, because it kept us on our toes.
7: Uh, It was like that in those days. It was kind of nice, really. It was never, you know, a deadly rivalry at all. It was just a homage. We were kind of paying each other in
5: public. We were stimulating each other to write and be the best that we could be. Through 1964 and 1965,
3: the Supremes reached number one five times on the U.S. pop charts, all written by Holland Dozier Holland. But despite this American success, the Motown tour repeatedly failed to draw the crowds in the U.K.
6: We just thought it was going to be a sellout, you know, and this and that. And each time we would go to a different town and a different theatre, and it was the same. It it, it really never got better. But night after night, looking out into the audience and seeing a half-empty house, England was a big disappointment. (laughs) The tour's failure was most disappointing
3: to the ambitious Barry Gordy. But after the tour's final show in Portsmouth, he was given one last chance to crack the UK by another British friend.
18: They say it themselves that if it hadn't been for Dusty They probably wouldn't have gotten their foot in the door Dusty
3: Springfield, one of the most successful British singers at the time Was also a huge Motown fan
1: You have the sweetest boy in the world Without a doubt you the was an angry girl
3: Before the review went back to the States, Dusty used her influence to get them on one of the few cool shows on British television.
6: After
13: the negative attitude of most of radio and all television, the advent of Ready Steady Go was a major, major plus for pop music, in general, American black music in particular.
15: If you were a kid who was interested in anything slightly alternative, edgy, then Ready Steady was the place where you you did get mixture of music. You've got American artists, you've got American records, you've got people who were mods, who looked wonderful with the hair, the clothes. We really did reflect Swinging
3: London. What made an hour-length Motown special all the more extraordinary was that black people rarely appeared on British television in the mid-sixties.
15: We didn't see black music and when Ready Steady had James Brown on and we, we did a whole show with him a whole hour, I mean the amount of people that called up and complained about having him on television was absolutely horrifying. There weren't that many black people visible
18: on television, except for Cleo Lane, who looked white. That was how she got on television, because you didn't see black people on the television.
3: To persuade the businessmen at Associated Rediffusion to broadcast an hour-length program full of Motown artists, unknown to most of the British public, was a
4: challenge. Motown special wouldn't have been an easy thing to do because uh, although we loved the music I get a feeling that uh, the, the, the bosses and the people didn't realise how good the music was oh,
1: yeah. a
3: But Vicky Wickham's suggestion that Dusty Springfield
18: host the event made it far more palatable
3: to her bosses
18: She said to them I will do it and they couldn't believe it and dusty at that time was like the biggest soulful singer in this country and when she said i'll do it then it was like here we go
7: we weren't surprised that ready city go would put on something like that because there's what we thought was the best stuff around so put it on telly
22: produced by dusty springfield
15: dusty thought she died and gone to heaven I mean, it was her idea of absolute bliss
1: and it's famous for its cars and for a collection of buildings called Pittsburgh. Here were their newest ones. Ooh, baby, baby, it is the miracle!
12: I was on some goddamn school trip in the middle of Cornwall thinking, how on earth am I going to get to a television set? I'm going to die if I don't see this program. a hotel the hotel bar had a television set and a billiards table I don't know what I would have done if that if that TV set hadn't been in the hotel probably would have killed them.
14: certainly for me it was incredibly important because all these artists I liked and was telling everybody about, suddenly had national exposure.
6: The Ready, Steady, Joe show hosted by Dusty Springfield was very important to the Motown sound because no one had heard of the Miracles or the Supremes prior to that show. And after that, all of our music hit the charts. To me, it was a wonderful show,
9: one of the best. The so exciting part was was the finale. Everybody was on stage together, and everybody sang, and everybody did Mickey's Monkey.
11: Motown was what they call underground now. Underground, but it was coming up overground. And when it came on TV in the uh, Ready Steady Go special, that's when really everyone who had a TV could see this music for the first time as it was. And I think that's when the, the British love affair with Motown began.
3: Motown artists flew back to Detroit before the Ready Steady Go special was broadcast across Britain. If the show had been televised during their UK trip, the tour may well have been the success they'd hoped for. One year later, in the autumn of 1966, England had just won the World Cup and the British capital was now officially swinging. The four tops were at number one in the UK pop charts and had just flown in to play their very first show in London.
12: You could argue that November the 13th, 1966 was when it truly arrived. It was the collision of the popular and the cool. It was cool because the show was promoted by Brian Epstein. It had the imprimatur of the Beatles. Everyone in London wanted to be there. And we were allowed to go along and he had a little special box for
7: himself and us. So we could all just sit there, you know, like kings of the universe, checking out the Motown show, you know. Well, we didn't need any more in life
8: than that. We went out there, and it was was like the people were just hungry for us. It's like everything just opened up, and we just fell into their groove. And then we took them to Oz, and it was probably the best show we ever did. I mean, we were really hyped. Something happened that night that was really magic.
12: And they moved like a train. You just couldn't believed that such excitement and such dynamism was possible and they captured it and you know Levi with the commanding voice everything about them was was the quintessence of Motown
13: they kept these grooves going uh, the rhythm section I can remember I stood there and got the audience to get to get up on their feet because and, and clap on the offbeat because the groove was so strong And I think that was the first time that the generally stayed English audiences actually got up and danced as they listened.
8: We had about three or four encores, if I'm not mistaken. That night, I mean, we had to keep going back. What a night that was, and I'll never forget it.
12: Suddenly, it was everywhere. It ruled the world. So you could almost say that that was the peak. That was the moment, at least in Britain, where everyone was in love with Motown. That's what it meant. That was it. And in 1966, while we were on that tour,
8: we could say that Motown had truly arrived. Everywhere you went, I mean, people just all they talked about was the Motown sound. I mean, and we were basically like the Beatles. Sometimes we had we had to jump in ambulance. You know, we had to go out the back door, of theaters, you know, to, to 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 get away from the crowd and things like that. A lot of time we thought we thought about that and talked about it, it was in the dressing room. We said, man, you know, where where we just come from and look where we are now. I said, what a wonderful world this is, man. How great is this.
3: The UK tour and Ready Steady Go special in nineteen sixty five were absolutely crucial to establishing Motown success in Britain by 1966, with an increasing flow of musical masterpieces hitting the British charts, Motown had finally cracked the UK. Motown music had
13: a magic about it, that there was just a continuity, there was a a style, there was a feel-good factor, it was very uplifting in its way, very spiritual. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world.
9: What are you going to do when I'm gone?
1: Whose shoulder are you going to play on? What are you going to do on the day When I turn my head and, and walk away now? What are you going to say to your friends?
18: There was nothing else like it, nothing else whatsoever. Motown, it will definitely go down in history as being like Obama, (coughs) the first, you know.
4: There's no week that goes by when I haven't played a Motown record on a radio station somewhere. And it doesn't sound dated, it sounds as fresh as the day they made it. It's just a label that is just so special. The artists are just so wonderful. It's something that no other label has
11: captured. Stay with us tonight here on BBC4. There's plenty more funk to come as we're standing in the shadows of Motown. Next.
2: Welcome back. And that was a uh, documentary on uh, the... Motown invasion of the UK in 1965 and, of course, later in 1966 with the Four Tops, and we're celebrating uh, Black Music Month here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, June 4th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, the home of Motown. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more.
1: You came along Into the life, Destroying me, boy Mounting up the toil and strife But I'm a fool, boy I'm a fool you're breaking my heart, and you know it's true, but I'm a fool for you, 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 don't get me every day, but child, I'm here to stay, cause I'm a fool for you.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. That is the sound of the impressions uh, from Chicago, Illinois, led by Curtis Hill. And uh, our next stop will be Chicago. Uh, we just previously uh, listened to the Detroit origins of uh, modern popular music. Now let's go to Chicago to examine uh, the blues, uh, rhythm blues. Let's listen in.
1: And blue, Chicago style. Oh.
19: It was blues. It was rock and roll. All the and it was Windy City Soul. Oh, On a musical mile in Chicago, independent record companies pumped out hits that made America dance.
22: It was a different sound. The world loves something different.
0: It's amazing that this is black music. There weren't any black entrepreneurs in it.
22: We
5: tried to set the standard for what black people should do in the record business. We had the best music, and we gave the best parties. I mean, it was the
19: best. It was the dawn of rhythm and blues, and on one Chicago street, R&B history was made. This is Etta James, and the street was record row
8: major funding for record row cradle of rhythm and blues was provided by the corporation for public broadcasting additional funding was provided by the central educational network the illinois humanities council and the national academy of recording arts and sciences
19: Black Chicago, in the 1950s, it was booming. 800,000 African-Americans called the Windy City home, and 2,000 more black folk arrived from the South every week. They came for jobs in northern factories and steel mills. They came for a chance at a better life. And in Chicago, they found so many ways to enjoy themselves. In Southside nightclubs and beer joints, they danced to live music and to records spinning on the jukebox. But to hear this music over the airwaves, black Chicagoans tuned their radio to one voice.
5: Now it's time for your old friend and swingmaster,
23: Al Benson. Thank you. And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Here
22: I am, all ready and all set, to bring to you 30 minutes of Red Hot Beat Me Down bring you up spring tunes of today. And now it's on with the show.
19: Benson was the first DJ in the city to broadcast the gut-bucket delta blues of the South and the up-tempo rhythms from the West Coast. Al Benson played rhythm and the blues, and it was just what Black Chicago wanted to hear. With Benson playing the music and Blacks earning more money, sales of R&B records soared. In segregated America of the 1950s, Black music was basically ignored by most major record labels. Only a handful of small companies made records for Black consumers. But as the demand for black music grew, dozens of independent record companies sprang up to cash in on a new market. Chicago was soon buzzing with companies recording rhythm and blues. Several of these record labels settled on South Michigan Avenue, a street that was known as Record Road. The street has changed a lot since its heyday in the late 50s and early 60s. Tattered buildings, small businesses, and parking lots hide record Row's former glory. When it was home to 17 record distributors and a half a dozen record labels with names like Chess, Wonderful, Chant, King, Constellation, Brunswick, and DJ. Back then, the street was hot. Record labels fought to be the first to get their song on the radio. Would-be producers covered the city looking for talent. Steel workers and cab drivers became stars overnight.
20: There was such an abundance of excitement that was created in this little area between Roosevelt Road and 22nd Street.
23: Everyone knew everyone. We all ate at the same restaurant, fast restaurant in the New Michigan Hotel. Many times a guy would start at one end trying to sell you his song or master and work his way up. Sometimes they'd sell it two or three times, and would be laughing all the time. Back in those days, you could
10: come, you could hit every major company in the world in two blocks.
20: It was unbelievable. You could walk down one side and up the other, and you'd run into
19: somebody with a hit record in their back pocket. Um. The music that drove record roll was mostly black music, written and performed by black artists. But most of the power was in the hands of white record men like Leonard and Phil Chess, two of the most loved, hated, and influential men in the black music industry. They came over from Poland with their family in 1928.
22: My dad had a junkyard on 29th and State Street, and my brother used to go and help him during the summer and on Saturdays. Right across there was a little run-down run shack, there was a church, and when they get in a groove on a Saturday or Sunday, starts start clapping their hands. Man, you sit, stand there, and you couldn't help, but, but, but jump to the music. That's when we first heard the music.
19: In 1945, the Chess Brothers owned a nightclub for blacks, called the Macamba Lounge. They hired musicians to entertain the crowd with jazz and urban blues. Blacks crowded these clubs for the nightlife and the music. Leonard and Phil saw an opportunity. There weren't many recordings of these musicians, so they quit the bar business and became record men and started up a relationship with DJ Al Benson. Al Benson would play a record four times in a row as he
23: took care of him, right? (laughs) And you'd have instant reaction. He had, he was the first with a major black listening audience. Major, but that's the only place they could hear it. Uh
1: To get my pistol out of barn.
19: Many blues artists were unskilled laborers by day and blues men by night. They brought their harmonicas and guitars from the South and amplified them, creating a new sound, urban blues. The first hit maker for Chess Records was a truck driver named McKinley Morganfield, better known as Muddy Waters.
20: Just don't work on you.
19: Muddy's vocal style and bottleneck guitar playing were born in the Mississippi Delta, and his music influenced a generation of blues and rock musicians.
1: girl,
5: but I my
24: baby
21: boy in Muddy Waters, along with the Chess Records and Bennett that amplified harmonica in guitar
22: here in Chicago. Muddy was Chess Records. To me, it was Chess Records. He was the foundation.
19: And on that foundation, Chess built the number one blues label in the world. Their artists were legendary. Holland Wood, Little Walter, Sonny Boy Williamson, and Jimmy Rogers. The Chess brothers were equal partners in the company, but it was Leonard who was the driving force. He was a sharp businessman with a streetwise personality and a hot temper that spared no one, not even his own son.
23: I went to ask him when I first started working there what my job was. He got really mad at me. I, was, I you know, what the f- are you asking me that? <laughs> Watching me is your job. <laughs> and when you're ready, I'll let you do something. You just got to watch me. You watch me eat, you yeah. watch me drive, you watch me talk.
19: That's what he saying, He got mad that I asked it. Leonard and Phil Chess knew the music, but they weren't of the music. So in 1951, Leonard hired bass player Willie Dixon to help out in the studio. Oh,
2: well, when my baby kissed me and she squeezed me real tight, she l- l- looked me in the eyes and said, yeah, thing's all right. I get nervous.
19: Willie Dixon soon became producer, talent scout, and songwriter for the label. His music propelled the careers of many blues artists and helped Chess and Chicago become a magnet for blues musicians. At one point in time, Chicago was the capital of the
21: world in blues. You can ask the Rolling Stones or the Clapton's or whoever came here.
14: The blues is a, is a basic backbone of just about every form of popular music there is uh,
10: in this century. Now, when I was a young boy, <clears throat> at the age of
14: five, <clears throat> Chicago has produced, I uh, mean, everybody that turned the arts. But I must say that those guys, Howling Wolf, Muddy, and John Lee, the greats of gents, Always I mean they I always got the feeling that they looked upon us as little seeds they'd planted that come home.
23: I have lots of
1: fun.
19: As unique and important as chess was. There was another company just six blocks down the street that also made history. DJ Records, the most financially successful black-owned record company before Motown. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, sweetheart.
1: It's time to go. DJ started in
19: 1953 with a doo-wop group called The Spaniels. Their catalog covered blues, jazz, gospel, R&B, and rock and roll. In fact, V.J. was the first American company to sign the Beatles.
20: What you have to know about V.J. Records is that the V stood for Vivian, and the J stood for Jimmy, which was Jimmy Bracken.
5: (laughs) Everything was special about V.J. Records. What was special about V.J. Records? Okay, V.J. Records was started by a woman who had been a waitress in the Club de Lisa. Her name was Vivian Carter Bracken. She was a student of Al Benson and she went over into Gary and started a radio show and opened up a record store. And out of opening up this record store said these people come in here and they buy these records and some of these records are hard to find and she told her husband who owned a little of Shoeshine Parlor and, and stuff and said, why don't we start making
19: these records? So Vivian and her husband, Jimmy Bracken, took a $500 loan from a pawn shop and built a multi-million dollar business.
1: Well, I tried to tell you, baby, make no
19: when Vivian and Jimmy were auditioning one blues singer, a backup musician named Jimmy Reed caught their ear. They asked him if he'd written any songs, and Jimmy said, no, but I've made up a few. Jimmy Reed became the label's top blues man and helped VJ give Chess a run for its money in the blues market.
1: same, well, same, it's oh, the same
19: But you don't find artists like Jimmy Reed too often. A hit record has to be crafted. And Calvin Carter, the label's chief producer and Vivian's younger brother, was responsible for the creative side of DJ. Calvin Carter was a strange
5: mixture. Actor, musician, politician, crybaby, ex-Marine Corps. He had this soul, this, this thing inside of him that heard unusual talent. Calvin Carter was a non-musician musician. I mean, he didn't play anything, but he could hear everything.
1: He me, I want to know How can I tell if you me so? in his eyes?
5: Oh, no, I recall three, the Shoop Shoop song with Betty Everett no, and he had people me, stomping on know. telephone books to get that. People often wondered how in the world did he get that sound out of the bass drum. Well, it wasn't a bass drum. It was people stomping on telephone books.
0: Calvin knew talent and Vivian uh, understood what was happening and could play it. And, um, uh, but they didn't have uh, they didn't have the knowledge of the industry uh, or the background to, to take it beyond where they were, and Jimmy was smart and knew that. So they kind of brought me in and immediately made me general manager of the company and two years later made me president.
5: Not only was he a genius in terms of marketing and merchandising, U.S. Uh, Abner was one of those guys who could stay up for three or four days at a time and just entertain people and hypnotize them and, draw him into his spirit.
0: And I had some dreams and some visions, see, about it. I had watched the white companies. I'd watched Chess take Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon. I'd watched Atlantic in New York, you know, and saw what they did. And so I said, hey, man, you know, this
19: here, we can do this. Abner knew black DJs were vital to record sales. And in those days, DJs were paid to play. Not only was it legal, it was expected. I was the bag
0: man for the company. By that, I mean I take the bag out, cash. Cash type money out. Because even though you send them, even though you send the jocks the checks on a regular basis, this was sort of like a retainer. See, this was a retainer to keep the relationship cool, okay, so that your records can be at least considered to be played. Now when you want serious play, now that's a whole, that escalates to another level, see. Now you gotta go out there and you gotta put the green on them, okay. And, And you gotta be a friend to do that. Yeah, you know, we go to breakfast, lunch, and
19: dinner, you know. Get wasted with them, party with them, play cards with them. I mean, they became friends. With Abner making the connections, DJ artists were getting airplay on black stations around the country. They had every kind of music a black audience could want. I
1: love the way you walk. I love the way-
19: from the blues of John Lee Hooker, the doo-wop hits of the Magnificence and the El Dorado, and gospel songs from the Staple Singers and the Caravans. Record sales soared, and so did black businesses along record row. Despite racial barriers and segregation, Record Row was a rare place where black entrepreneurs could grab a piece of the American dream.
25: With the creation of Record Row came the creation of many new opportunities for black professionals. Black professional musicians, accountants, businessmen, entrepreneurs. The Leaner brothers, for example, formed the United Distributors. United Record Distributors started up
19: when DJ Al Benson gave a loan to his nephews, Ernie and George Liener, two ambitious brothers from Mississippi.
21: United Record Distributors was the first and only black independent record distributor in the United States.
19: They focused on black music and hired black personnel to ship and promote records to black DJs across the country giving them a competitive edge against other distributors.
21: It also made the other distributors hire black salesmen, promotion men, that were not involved because as we were going to the VONs and the other radio stations, then they said, well, how
10: come y'all can't have folks that look like the folks that come from United? Remember now, this was the only black distributorship in Chicago
25: And we were, you know, proud of them. I mean, they were there with the big boys and holding their own. Record Row provided role models. You know, I'm sure no one quite looked at it in that way at that time, but it did send a signal that black entrepreneurship can work.
19: The rhythm and blues industry on record row was born out of segregation, just like the race film industry of the 1930s, which reflected black life and the Negro baseball leagues that gave blacks their own national pastime. But there was an important difference. These entertainments were confined to black communities. But rhythm and blues music was on the radio, and the airways carried it across America's color line. A few white DJs even began playing the music, like Alan Freed, who called it rock and roll to make it more acceptable to the parents of white teenagers.
22: You women have heard of the you've heard the noise they made But
19: But call it rock and roll or rhythm and blues, it was still black music and segregationists campaigned to stop it.
16: We've uh, set up a 20-man committee to do away with this vulgar, animalistic, nigger, rock and roll box.
25: The protest about the music had more to do with the social policies of the South, of, of keeping the races apart. And at the same time, keeping this black, so-called black influence out of the community. The black kids, the white kids were listening to this music. So what the record companies had to do was to figure and radio stations, the music was in demand. Well, how can we give these teenagers the music that they want to hear and not offend their parents so the solution was cover records
16: know just what to do i went through the east a went through the west she's a gal i love
0: booty, all booty. Booty, all booty. our music was made acceptable to the general market by these white artists covering it because the radio stations would not play the black artists playing the record but that same record done very close to like they copy the arrangement, they copy everything by white artist was acceptable to the pop stations and they play it. Life would be treating me if I
1: could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart Treat let I'm as happy as can be
0: He's have jokes every time that uh, Laverne Baker would do a song, Georgie Gibbs over here would cover it immediately, do the same song, and Laverne would sell to the black market X number, you know, and Georgie would sell to the white market X to the 10th power or something.
5: A lot of stations wouldn't play Laverne Baker. They would play the cover versions by Georgie Gibbs or Pat Boone or whoever was doing it. Uh, that was, there's it, a big stink about nothing. And the truth of the music eventually came through. The real artists got their due. Usually when people are not personally affected by an injury, they have a tendency to think in terms of the injury not being so great. The Spaniels, for instance, record a song called Goodnight Sweetheart, Goodnight. Sell a half a million copies, basically in the black community. The McGuire Sisters who records the same song. Uh, sells two or three million copies. It's about money. And when you are denied access to a market based on the color of your skin, that becomes personal. It no longer becomes much to do about nothing.
19: As strong as racism was, capitalism was even stronger. When white kids grew bored with covers and started demanding the real thing, white DJs started playing it.
11: Maybelline, why
1: can't you be
19: true?
1: Oh, can't you be true? Just back doing the things you used to do. Oh.
19: It was a dramatic turning point in pop music history. Black music began to cross over to white radio. In nineteen fifty five, one of the biggest crossover artists out of Chicago was Chuck Berry on Chess Records. I'm in the Michigan and I got the radio on. And also,
22: God damn, I said, That's Maybelline. Well, I mean in, in about an hour I must have heard it about eight or ten times. I said, God damn. Next thing I know I got a call my brother. Man, forget the goddamn parents' weekend. <laughs> get your butt back here, man. We gotta ship records.
19: Chuck Berry wrote songs that exploited the white teen experience, with tales of high school, lost loves, and new cars. The cool down, the heat went down. That's when I heard that highway sound. Cadillac sat like a ton of lead.
16: 110, half a mile ahead. Cadillac looked like set in and I caught Maybelline. Top of the
23: hill, We have something that
22: was the right time and the right sound for america they called elvis Presley the king of rock and roll i i disagree i'll agree with chuck berry he said he was the king of rock and roll and i believe it i really do
19: earlier that year another chess artist ellis mcdaniels better known as bo didley also crossed over to a white teen audience but he might never have been a chess artist at all if vj records just down the street hadn't rejected him hey!
21: They were not interested because I was playing something different and something they never heard before. It sounded too, too primitive or something. Or other I guess that's what it was, you know. But and I went to and to Chess and there and Phil Chess called Leonard and told Leonard that uh, hey, this cat got something different here. You know, it just might turn out to be something. Let's try it. And here I
16: am. Let's run one down, Bo. Rolling, Master A, Master A, take one.
19: Bo played the guitar with a drum-like rhythm, a technique that got him a spot on the Ed Sullivan Show in
22: 1955. He had a big record out called Bo Diddley. At the same time, there was a big record out called 16 Tons. Now, did this, this 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 big Han show, Winston Sullivan, once Bo Diddley to do? 16-ton, but man, I'm not goddamn say I don't know nothing about no 16-ton.
16: I'm supposed to be playing my
21: my, my hit song, you understand know I me, mean, not 16-ton, why you got 16-ton?
22: Now, he don't know Bo Diddley from Adam, man, I mean, he never listened to that. He gets up there and he waits for him to do 16-ton, he, he does Bo Diddley. Oh,
16: did the body
19: Over, he said, you'll never be on my show again. <laughs> Bo didn't have to be on Sullivan's show again. That one appearance was enough to make him a million seller and put Chess Records on the map. For VJ Records, Bo Diddley was the one that got away. But there were plenty of crossover successes for VJ. D. Clark was one of them, with pop hits like Raindrops and Hey Little Girl.
24: had an amazing voice, a clear, tenor, penetrating voice, and uh, could just, just sing his
12: butt off.
0: This throbbing in my brain, so
1: strange I can't explain, but I like it, I like it, mm, like it, how about
5: that? D was a man who
10: sounded
24: like a woman in the high register, and that was unique. I said, like, wow, what is that?
10: His music, probably 75% of it, sold to white people. It wasn't what you call real soul. It was called, we used to call it the happy flute sound because they used flutes in the background of the records.
1: In 1962,
19: two independent producers, Bill Bunky Shepard and Carl Davis, brought a song and a singer to VJ. They
25: had a hunch that he'd be a sensation. I through this world, nothing can stop
10: I put the song together in a rehearsal. We were just opening up our throats, do 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 do, going up the scales, and I just told them to say do do. It was really do 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 do, and we began to say do do do.
20: I said we got to cut that tomorrow because the session was the next day. And they said, wait, no, we, we don't have no lyrics for this song. So we'll go home and write something.
0: And it was, to me, a strange sounding record. Duke, 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 do, do, do It was a whole bunch of dukes, you know. But Calvin said, Calvin Carter, in the ear. Calvin said, eh, that's
20: a smash. I'll never forget we released The Duke of Earl November the 5th, 1962. And by Christmas, it was almost the number one record in the country.
19: The Duke of Earl sold over a million copies and helped make V.J. one of the most successful R&B labels in the country. But for Abner, it wasn't enough. He wanted V.J. to tap the dollars of the white pop market. To do that, the label would need more than crossover music. Racism was a fact of life, that existed, and segregation, all that kind of stuff,
0: so, so what? I mean, I hate it, and it's bad, and it's wrong, and it's immoral, and all that kind of stuff, but I gotta move. We had white guys that worked for us who did promotion in the South. We had Red Schwartz did promotion for us on the East Coast. Whatever it took to get whatever we needed, I'd hire it. I didn't see any reason why VJ shouldn't be what we call a full-line label. Jazz, blues, spiritual, country and western, pop. I thought we could do it, and we set about doing it.
19: And they did. VJ had one of the biggest hits in jazz history with Eddie Harris's "Exodus to Jazz. And in 1962, Abner put VJ on the map in the pop market. VJ launched the four seasons. Big girl. But the move that assured VJ a place in rock and roll history happened in 1962 when they went to EMI Records in England to pick up the U.S. rights to a British crooner, Frank Ifield. I remember you. As part of the deal, EMI threw in a group that was popular in England but virtually unknown in America. Once again, it was a story of one record company picking up a group that another company turned down. EMI first offered the Beatles to its own American subsidiary, Capitol Records.
0: But if Capitol doesn't want it, then EMI is free to peddle it. So Capitol, for some
19: reason or another, whoever was in charge at that time said, "I, I don't like this stuff, no. And so I said, okay, let's go for it. The Beatles were hot in Europe, but their first American single, Please Please Me, didn't even crack the top 100 in the U.S. So after one more disappointing single, in the spring of 63, V.J. put their plans for the Beatles along with the rest of the master tapes on the shelf. As the 60s arrived, R&B began to embrace the sounds of the black church and turn away from the blues. It was music we would later call Soul. Soul! The dawn of soul in Chicago was VJ's "For Your Precious Love" by The Impressions, featuring lead singer Jerry Butler and a 16-year-old singer and guitarist Curtis Mayfield.
21: We loved singing "For Your Precious Love." That was one of our better songs, and of course, that's what we used to audition, and we uh, won over with that particular song.
19: Curtis became the most prolific songwriter of the Chicago Soul Era. But it was Jerry Butler who wrote the lyrics to For Your Precious Love. Rolling
5: Stone magazine said that our recording of For Your Precious Love kind of ushered in what people later became to know as soul music. That there was this wonderful marriage of the street and the church, the secular and the spiritual.
19: Jerry Butler went solo in 1959, and several of his early hits were written and composed with Curtis Mayfield.
1: He don't love you
19: like love you
1: He's trying
19: to us With Jerry Butler gone, Curtis took over the impression And with Fred Cash and Sam Gooden, the group blended mellow R&B harmonies and black gospel styles. The result was Silky Smooth Soul. Say it's alright, it's
1: alright, say
19: it's alright.
10: Curtis Mayfield wrote some of the greatest love songs of all time as far as I'm concerned. My favorite Curtis Mayfield song is Rainbow. God, singing it for 30 years and I have the same feeling. It drives me into the same world of ecstasy. I'm trying to do something to about that. Come, Come on, stop this rainbow. <laughs> yeah.
21: Well, there always has been a Chicago sound. I mean, there are so many fantastic artists, uh, whether they be blues, contemporary or gospel. Uh, were recorded out of Chicago.
19: One of those artists was Major Lance. He danced his way on to the pop charts with Curtis Mayfield's Monkey Time. But it was the producer of the Duke of Earl, Carl Davis, who made Major Lance a star. He was a boxer. He was a little prize fighter. So he could
20: dance. I mean, he had moves that you wouldn't believe, but uh, Major was not the world's greatest singer. So what we did was we got the impressions, which was Fred, Sam, and Curtis, and they did the background. And there were, in the spots that Major was weak at, we had the background do the lead with him.
5: When you look at the guys who were part of the Chicago music scene, Carl Davis as a producer. uh, No recognition whatsoever, but I I don't know if there was anybody from that era, 60s and 70s, that could go any deeper in terms of knowledge of record production
19: and instincts. From the mid-1960s through the early 70s, Carl Davis headed up Brunswick Records and pumped out hits with artists like the Shy Lights. Brunswick was part of a soul music explosion out of the city. Black teenagers danced to music from Chicago companies with names as upbeat as their sounds. OK, Wonderful, Marvelous, Constellation, Mercury, ABC Paramount, Chess, and Curtin. While these labels and others competed for Black America's attention, a label out of Detroit stepped up to steal the show. Motown reshaped R&B for mainstream America. They made it easy to dance to, added sequence, slick choreography, and captured both white and black audiences. One of their biggest innovations was the way they presented their artists. Teaching artists how to walk, talk, dress,
24: perform, everything else. That, uh, hence, before I don't think had been done, not to that extent. <laughs>
19: Billy Davis was the songwriting partner of Motown president Barry Gordy until Leonard Chess brought him to Chicago in 1961. Leonard saw Motown rise and, and prosper,
24: you know, so he wasn't dumb. <laughs> he realized he had to do something different uh, in order to sell more, more records.
1: <laughs>
19: Davis left the slick pop sound of Detroit behind and went to work with Chicago artists. Steeped in gospel and rough-edged rhythm and blues, at Chess he found artists like Sugar Pie DeSanto, Mitty Collier, Minnie Ripperton, and me, Eddie James.
24: I loved Eddie because she had this, she was pre Aretha, a great voice with a great soul, great heart.
23: And she was such a character. I remember, she'd come with an entourage, a dressmaker. A uh, hairdresser, uh, this, that, and she was definitely in the in the top echelon of a woman singer. Man, she could sing.
19: In the Billy Davis era, Chess added pop influences and full-blown arrangements, and began to move away from the blues to music aimed at a new black generation. that found success with the label's new R&B sound started out as a doo-wop group, the Dells. When we were kids, we came to Chess,
20: and then a Chess told Marvin, our lead singer, said, uh, he asked me, he said, do you have a job? Marvin said, yeah, I got a job. I said, well, keep it, because you never be a singer. <laughs> That's the one time Leonard Chess was
8: wrong.
1: Oh, what a day.
19: many different sounds of chess. The love ballads of Billy Stewart and the sweet voice of Fontella Bass. Baby and baby and a lot of people thought Rescue Me for
9: years was the Motown sound because it was so up, but uh, it was really a Chicago sound. And we used to argue about the Motown and the Chicago and the Motowns in the Chicago, you know. So we both stole from
19: one another. So.
1: <laughs>
19: Rescue Me was so big that it topped the pop charts and the R&B chart. But crossover success never sidetracked Leonard Chet from his main focus, the black audience. The Black Giant.
1: I-W-B-O-N, Giant Sound of Soul.
19: In the 60s, black Chicago tuned to a low-powered radio station Leonard Chess brought in 1963. It was the first 24-hour black music station in the city.
20: Their playlist definitely helped record sales because if you weren't on their list, the stores wouldn't stock the product. You had to be on WBON. Here's
5: a lovely girl, honey. Her name is Bob Braxton. She says, love, make, because it was the powerhouse black station in Chicago that made it one of the powerhouse black stations in America, and and thus a trendsetter. If you could break a record or, or get a record happening in Chicago, it, it served as a precedent for getting it happening in New York or L. A. or Detroit. Well,
24: that's a gas, and that's Rogers came here. I, I don't think there's a radio station in the world that was hotter than this one when it was hot. And the amazing thing about it is we were um, 1,000 watts in the day and 250 at night. The big radio stations like WGN, WBBM, they were 50,000 watts. Even with that, we were number one. It was phenomenal. Everything was just phenomenal. Of course, everything Leonard Chess touched uh, took off for him.
19: Leonard bought VON to boost record sales and to make money from commercials but it grew into something more significant. The VON stood for Voice of the Negro and yes, I
10: think that station more than any station I know of lived up to um, the fact that it was the voice of the black community.
0: The community relied on them to keep them informed on what was happening, what was going on, what causes were worth supporting. You know, what positions to take, who to get mad at. You know what I mean? In addition to selling grease for your hair and all the rest of that stuff, they did these other kinds of things too, but they were community people. They were more than just jockeys.
19: Black Chicago tuned to VON to hear news about the struggle for civil rights, the fight to end segregation, and for basic freedoms, the right to vote, the right to an education and open housing. And the music began to reflect the call for black power. In Chicago, Curtis Mayfield was writing soul music with a message. We're a and
1: never let anybody say I well, you can't make it. It
21: doesn't always have to be a love song. It can be a song of controversy, uh, a song of inspiration say it even when you know those in opposition may not like what you're saying, but be true to yourself.
19: The soul era marked a new age of self-determination for African Americans. Curtis Mayfield was one of the first black performers to take control of his own music. He set up a publishing company to ensure ownership. Of his songs, usually no artists
21: own themselves or own their own songs, and I sought to change that at
5: least for myself. When Curtis talks about owning as much of yourself as possible, we came through a period when guys like John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and Jimmy Reed. These men, for all and purposes, were illiterate, had no education. They never had their own publishing companies. Uh, some of them never even had the copyright on the songs that they made up. And so, basically, they became musical sharecroppers
19: or musical slaves. Record companies always kept the publishing rights to songs. That meant labels like Chess owned the music created by their artists.
23: The perception was that the artist would make his money mostly from appearances, gigging, rather than from record or publishing.
8: But your publishing is where all your money is at. You don't make no money out here in the street
19: Chess was also accused of shortchanging performers on royalty payments. If I got ten dollars, you know, they got ten thousand. If I got ten
9: thousand, they got ten million. And that's the way it worked.
24: I, I don't think it's fair for history to say that, that Leonard Chess and Chess Records ripped off the black artists any more than B.J., Motown, or Atlantic, or you name it.
10: We began to demand things. It's like before we were scared to uh, demand certain things as artists and figure we shouldn't speak because it would
19: hurt our careers or something. But we began to speak, and it helped a lot. Artists like Curtis Mayfield started taking even more control of their music by forming their own record label. Curtis and Eddie Thomas launched Kurt Tom Records in 1968. It became a multi-million dollar label when Curtis scored a 1972 hit film. The soul era saw a dramatic rise in the popularity of black artists, but it also was the beginning of the end for many independent R&B labels because major record companies saw that black music could mean big profits. In 1963, V.J.'s artists were scaling the charts in pop, R&B, blues, jazz, and gospel. But appearances can be deceiving. The label's habit of big spending led to cash flow problems. When bills and royalty payments came due, V.J. couldn't pay. Whenever you're expanding, you always spend more than you're, than you're taking in during
0: expansion. And my idea was to expand. I had a serious disagreement with, with uh, with Jimmy and Vivian. And they felt that it was time to retrench. And I said, if you retrench now, we'll be little. We'll go back to being little again, and I don't want to be little. And uh, they said, but uh, we don't want to go in credit. I was going to borrow some money. I was going to get a line of credit. I said, we don't want to borrow money, it's ours.
19: To make matters worse, rumors began to go around that Abner was gambling with VJ's
0: money. No, it wasn't. true. So I didn't gamble with the company funds. What people don't know is that, that I owned a third of the company. And I'm gambling. If I gamble with money, it's my money. So we did. I will say that I believe I helped integrate the crap tables in Las Vegas at the dunes. Not that that's a worthy achievement or anything, but it's a fact.
1: I don't know why. I don't know why. There's no sun up in the sky.
0: They said, no more will you run it. And I said, if I can't run it, I can't be here. And uh, so
19: it wasn't a friendly parting. VJ reorganized with a new president, a former promotion man, Randy Wood. In the transition, a gold mine slipped through the cracks. (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles left VJ in August 1963, claiming their royalties weren't being paid. By January of 64, they signed with Capitol Records, the label that had turned them down a year earlier. That same month, their popularity exploded. But V.J. still had the master tapes to 15 songs, and they believed they had the right to release them, so they did. Capitol Records sued. V.J. didn't have the money to fight a long, drawn-out legal battle, so they settled. The label could continue to release its Beatles songs, but only till the end of the year. The Beatles made V.J. one of the highest-grossing record labels in the nation. The company felt ready to take its place alongside the majors and moved its offices to Hollywood. At the same time, V.J.'s president, Randy Wood, made a critical mistake. He left Calvin Carter, V.J.'s ear, back in Chicago. Wood tried to repeat the company's previous success with white pop acts, but he didn't have the instincts of Abner and Calvin and repeatedly signed artist that just didn't sell. I'll send my love to music. Within two years, DJ was near room. I was called back
0: in 1966. I got a call from Vivian and Jimmy, and Jimmy said, hey, I'm in real trouble, and would you come back and help me sort it out? And I said, yes. But when I got out there, there was a fleet of of Carl, Cadillacs
2: and Lincolns. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, on uh, the contributions of Chicago music uh, to uh, post-World War II African uh, American music in the United States. And that's going to conclude our program for today. Uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's at the Pan-African Radio Network. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're closing out uh, with Detroit's own jazz guitarist, uh, Kenny Burrell, from the album Midnight Blue, uh, initially released in 1963. This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week.